to all you fish enthusiasts out there. Whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week. It's Monday, September 20th, 2021, and we're excited to talk about all the fish. I'm Katrina Liebeck with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Ero, a roaming fish enthusiast. Today we're going to have a conversation about striped bass, and we've got Dr. Mike Armstrong with us from the Massachusetts Division of Marine Fisheries. Mike, welcome. We're super happy to have you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. All right, Mike. So the striped bass, when I was living out on the East Coast, I was really surprised by how much of an icon this fish was. Uh, You don't hear about it much on the West Coast, but from the Northeast down through the Chesapeake, it seemed like this was really one of the most popular sport fish. Can you give us a little bit of an introduction into what this fish is, what it looks like, and why it's so popular? Oh, okay. That's a a heavy lift there. So it's... um, it's a persiform fish, which means it's about as close to looking like what people think is a fish, you know, very fish-like, like a perch or something like that. Uh, the difference is they get to be four feet long and they live to be 30 years old. And they really are iconic compared to some of the other fishes that we fish for in the Northeast U.S. They all pale in comparison to striped bass. The enthusiasm is tremendous. When I give lectures, I tell them people think of them as as puppies, you know, rather than fish. They're really passionate about it, which is good and bad as a fisheries manager. There's a lot of emotions surrounding striped bass. So, you know, if we have folks listening, we don't have a fish in hand to show them because this is audio. Could you describe what exactly they look like? Sure. Picture in your mind's eye a fish. That's what a striped bass looks like. You know, it's got a couple of dorsal fins on the top. It's kind of elongated and torpedo-like. It's got a mildly forked tail and, you know, the usual arrangement of pectoral fins and pelvic fins. It's very much looks like what you think a fish should look like, as opposed to a flounder or, or you know, an eel-like thing. Yeah. And they got these crazy stripes. They do have stripes, and they're they're very distinct and... Depending on what stock they come from, the pattern may be different. That hasn't been demonstrated scientifically, but but fishermen think that's true. You know, there's always a purpose for fish coloration. It's often avoiding predation and things like that. But, you know, when you get to be a four-foot bass, you don't really need a lot of camouflage. So it may help with schooling and orientation within a school, things like that. But I'll be honest, we don't really know why they have the coloration that they do. But it is pretty. So in terms of the name, there's obviously the word bass in the name, which gets a lot of folks excited. But we're also both aware that some people call them rockfish. Where do these fish fit in kind of the quote unquote bass family? And, you know, what's the closest relative? They're in a family called Persichthyidae, which are the temperate basses. Their closest relative is white perch, which looks very much like a striped bass without the stripes and it lives in upper estuaries and a lot of people don't know about them because they don't grow big and they're not terribly abundant in where people fish so we end up with striped bass being the iconic fish the first time i encountered a striped bass in the wild was in the potomac river i, I usually think of these fish as being marine fish can you describe a little bit of their life history and uh, whether they're in the saltwater freshwater Sure. Well, they're in the group of fishes called anadromous, which is a fairly small group of fishes. 
that live most of their life in salt water, and then they run up into fresh water to spawn, to, to uh, lay eggs and fertilize them. And in this case, they will do that multiple times throughout their life. So they'll spawn and then drop back into seawater. The juveniles will grow up in fresh and brackish water and ultimately end up at a year old back in salt water. We know salmon do something similar, but are these fish doing this multiple times instead of just once, like the Pacific salmon? Yeah, unlike the Pacific salmon who spawn and die, these guys will spawn multiple times, up to 20 times in a lifetime. Oh, wow, that's a lot. If they live that long. Yeah, they mature at six, seven years old, and they they can live up to 30 years. We don't see a lot of 30-year-old fish. But in theory, they can spawn many, many times in their lifetime. And that anadromy is what allows them to get really big, right? Like, what are they eating out in the marine environment or the estuaries? They'll eat just about anything. You know, they like the high-energy things, the fatty fish, like menhaden and herrings. But if they're not available, they'll eat lobster, they'll eat worms, they'll eat just about anything in the bottom. They're, They're not that fussy. Continuing the kind of comparing and contrasting with the Pacific salmon, we know that when the salmon come in, they will put a lot of energy into building nests or reds for their eggs. Are these uh, striped bass, are they nest builders or do they do more of a broadcast spawning? Yeah, no, they they don't spend a lot of energy on nests. They will find the right salinity, which is actually probably freshwater just above where the saltwater ends. And that's where they'll spawn So it's just a bunch of males and females chasing each other around in a group spawn. So in terms of this ecology, they're spending time kind of out at sea in the estuaries and then the rivers. Where are people interacting with them the most? Or is it kind of half and half, like people fishing for them in freshwater, people fishing for them in the estuaries? Well, you know, it depends on where on the coast you're looking. For instance, Chesapeake Bay is a great big estuary. That's a huge, huge fishery. But the big fish are only in there to spawn for a couple of months. So they'll, they'll target big fish for in the spring. But in Chesapeake Bay, they mostly catch small fish. When you get out onto the coast, that's where you get the really the big fish. What is the, the natural range of these fish on the East Coast? Kind of, and I guess, related to that in, in fisheries, where's like the biggest, where are the biggest fisheries occurring? So they range from Cape Hatteras in North Carolina to all the way to the Canadian Maritimes. There's different stocks related to spawning areas. So one is in Chesapeake Bay. There's one in the Roanoke River in North Carolina. There's one in the Delaware River, one in Hudson River. There's a resurging one up in uh, the Canada Maritimes. So every state from North Carolina North has a really big fishery, seasonally, but at different times. The biggest fisheries for the recreation are Massachusetts and Maryland generally in terms of number of fish caught. And that changes when they're two or three year old, they get caught very heavily in Chesapeake Bay. And then we see them starting at about age four and five up in Massachusetts. And we'll have a huge surge in our recreational fishery as they pass through. And as managers, we worry, we've had some poor recruitment in the last few years and we're, we're hoping this isn't the beginning of uh, something from climate change. But ultimately, it may be that Chesapeake Bay, which is the biggest producer, may become inhospitable for spawning sometime in our lifetime, which would be 
pretty significant and tragic. So up in Massachusetts, I was looking into it and you guys have, of course, we've been talking about how big of a recreational fishery this is, but there also is a a commercial fishery that exists for striped bass. I'm just wondering how that kind of works and how you as managers deal with both a commercial and a recreational fishery. Well, it's (laughs) at times it's not easy. Of course, the rec folks do not want a commercial fishery at all, but we do about half the states on the East Coast have fishery of various sizes. So we have one and we have had one in fact since Pilgrim showed up. So it's very historic for us. It's tightly controlled under a small quota. 90% of all the fish removed are from the recreational fishery. So in a sense the commercial fishery is relatively insignificant in terms of mortality. But in terms of the commercial fishery in Massachusetts we only allow hook and line. There's no gill nets, there's no trawling, there's no uh, any other fishery Where are those commercially caught fish going in terms of markets? Where can people buy them to eat them? It's kind of split between local restaurants, um, you know, on Cape Cod and things like that. They always have striped bass specials during the uh, season, which runs from mid-June into September. But we export about half out of state. And I think most of it ends up through Fulton Fish Market in New York. And then it's distributed all over the U.S., In terms of history, I know folks probably fished for these fish before the settlers arrived. We have written accounts from, you know, the arrival of the settlers and how many fish were in the rivers. Can you kind of paint a picture of maybe what that was like? Yeah. Well, I I mean, you take some of these old reports from like the 1600s with the grain of salt, although I think there's a lot of merit to it. You know, the old reports where the rivers were just paved with striped bass. Um, but they also report with sturgeon that are very rare now with, with cod, which are down in abundance now. So I tend to believe that they were extremely abundant in most of the rivers on the East coast and through probably over exploitation, they've come down in time. The biggest collapse of the stock was back in the late seventies and through the eighties, the stock was regarded as collapsed. And in retrospect, It probably had some to do with environment. It probably also had a lot to do with overfishing on the spawning grounds. So fishing on the spawning grounds was banned that allowed them to spawn in peace. And the stock came back. By 1995, it was recovered. And it came back through aggressive management actions. So you mentioned there briefly that there was the overfishing and the collapse that came in the 70s, followed by the moratorium on striped bass harvest in the Chesapeake in the 80s, which is one of the most famous and most extreme fisheries management measures in, in U.S. history. I was just wondering if you could talk a little bit about what all had to come together to make that happen. You can't tinker your way back to recovery, and we tend to try and do that. And they tried to do that initially, but things got so bad that there was a public outcry and something had to be done. And so the federal government actually passed what's called the Striped Bass Act, and that provided some teeth to the rules, but also provided funding to do studies to look into why the stock had collapsed and what we can do to get it back. It actually supplied some money to do some hatchery work to supplement the natural population. So it really was the public outcry that got us going in that direction. How has that been to follow a species over a career and what have you learned? 
what have I learned? <laughs> well, it, it, it's neat to see a species actually recover from a low point based on management actions. But it's been hard because, like I said, it, it's a very, there's a lot of emotion behind catching these fish. I mean, there are people who literally fish 200 days a year for this fish. So one of the biggest challenges we face as managers is most striped bass, 90% of all striped bass are thrown back, either because people are just catch and release fishing or because they're not in the slot size that you can legally take. Unfortunately, a certain proportion of those die, no matter how well you treat them. Sometimes they're hooked in the gill or deep hooked or some other way. And so we assign a mortality of 9% of fish you throw back. So if you throw back 100 fish in a day, 9% of those will die. Well, if you do the math, we catch so many millions and millions of striped bass that at the end of the year, almost 50% of all mortality is from catch and release. So you release a fish and you go on your merry way and you say, that, that's, that's cool, but there's a chance that fish dies. And so there's a number of ways we're, we're trying to get at this number of 9%. And if we could reduce it to 5%, that's, that's millions of fish saved. So at ASMFC, we're, we're working hard on trying to come up with programs to educate folks. One is uh, using circle hooks. A deep hooked fish is very likely to die. Instead of catching deep down in the esophagus, if they swallow a piece of bait or something like that, circle hooks pull up out of the esophagus without hooking and then hook on the side of the mouth where you can just pull it out and it will do very little harm. So we actually made that mandatory for use. And, and concurrently with that, we're doing field studies using acoustic tags and things to really examine the whole question of survival of circle hooks versus other types of hooks and artificial lures. But really handling the fish once you catch it is probably where a fair amount of mortality happens. When you take a big, huge fish out of the water and hold it up for five minutes so that you can take a picture, you may be killing that fish. Gravity is tough on big fishes, so their guts literally compress. So the best way to do it, you, you need to support the belly, maybe hold on to its lip, but do not put your hand in the gills. They are so delicate that you can destroy the gill and that, that will kill the fish. So we advise, try to keep the fish in the water. Try to release it gently, uh, revive it before you let it go. And maybe the silver lining there is that it's in their control to do these things that you mentioned with the circle hooks and with the handling and taking a picture from the water. I mean, those pictures tend to look really nice anyways. You mentioned that these fish, they move around a lot from one state to another, and each state has its own management regime that's going on. How do states coordinate with one another to make sure that the state that has the fish early in the year doesn't catch them all and there's stuff left for everyone else? Yeah, boy, you've you've walked right into a landmine with that one. Um, <laughs> a lot of people complain that Chesapeake Bay, they will catch a whole lot of a year class when they're young. And that winds up affecting how many reach the coast. But what we do is we manage it through the Atlantic States Marine Fisheries Commission. And so we try to set regulations that are fair to every state. It doesn't always work out, but the basis of the management is, is pretty uniform throughout all the states. 
in terms of fishing, you mentioned they'll eat kind of just about anything. They're going after those fatty items. What are people most successful using when they're fishing for these guys out in the marine estuarine environments? And then also in freshwater, what are some of the techniques? So bass are actually, compared to a bluefish, they're kind of wily. Whereas a bluefish, they don't care that they see a hook and a hunk of line. They just go and eat. Bass are a little more wary. They'll actually, if you have a leader that's too dark or a hook sticking out, they may not eat what you're presenting to them. And, and it depends on where you're at on the coast. Up here, probably the most success and what people want, because it's a lot of fun, is to put a live mackerel on the line. And that's regarded as candy, striper candy. And if you can't catch a striper on a live mackerel, you, you're probably doing something. Or as we say, give up, take up bowling. But there's a lot of different ways to fish, too. Artificial lures work very well at, at certain times and places. Eels work very well. They used to use river herring a lot, which was another thing they called striper candy. But uh, the entire East Coast is under a harvest ban now for river herring because their populations decline. So that's not really an option anymore. These fish can get up over 100 pounds. I'm sure that's probably rare these days. But what, what kind of line or leaders uh, are, and rods and reels are people usually using to try to catch these fish? Well, depends. You know, depends on where you're fishing from. You can fish from a dock. You can fish from shore. You can fish from a boat. And the gear is very different from each one of those. You know, the guys on the shore use big surf rods and throw it out a hundred yards. You know, most people have moved to braid for line with a fluorocarbon leader. You know, you can use the artificials of which is so many different kinds. You can do vertical jigging in deep water, trolling with a variety of lures, or you can do sight casting. So pretty much anything you can think of as a technique, someone's probably doing it to catch striped bass. And what's the general timing for fishing both in a river versus in the estuaries or the marine environment? For the river fishing, it's all in the spring, in April, May, and that would be on the spawning grounds up in Hudson, Delaware, or Chesapeake Bay. For up here, you know, the more north you go, the longer before the season starts. So our season starts mid-May. In Maine, it's probably, you know, the beginning of June. In Chesapeake Bay, it's year-round. So we'll get little schoolies in the spring up here in Massachusetts. And they're, you know, they're 12 inches long and they're almost all from the Hudson River. And then a month later, bigger fish show up and they can be a mix of Chesapeake Bay and Hudson. And then you go to certain areas, the backside of the Cape, it'll be all Chesapeake Bay fish. Buzzards Bay might be all Hudson River fish. And that changes year to year and month to month. So say you catch one of these fish, you're going to retain it, you want to eat it. What are some good ways to eat a striper? Oh, just about any way. But <laughs> I think most people grill it. They fillet it and they grill it. So fillet it. There's some dark meat along the spine. Cut that out because that's kind of nasty tasting. And do whatever your favorite marinade is. A lot of people will marinate it overnight in like a lime, lemon juice, soy sauce kind of thing throw it on the barbecue. Restaurants will cut into smaller pieces and have different sauces. So I've seen it served a, a million different ways. 
I'm curious. I, I know some people like to really bleed out their fish when they catch them. I don't know if that's the case with striped bass, but is there any after you catch it sort of immediate techniques that you can use to get a better taste out of your fish? Yeah. And, and how you deal with it is how you should deal with all fish, but striped bass bleeding it is important and putting it on ice, packing it as ice immediately is certainly going to give you the best flavor when you get home. And is there any difference between the smaller fish and some of the older, larger fish? Well, <laughs> just based on my opinion, and a lot of people agree with me, <laughs> you want a, as small a fish as you can get. Now, that being said, on the coast, the slot size, you can't take a fish till they're 28 inches. In Chesapeake Bay, you can take them at 18 or 19 inches. But a 40-inch fish, I'm not sure why anyone would take one home to, to eat it. I, I think they're kind of not that great eating. Are there any final messages you'd want to give to folks about striped bass conservation or just things they can do to help see these fish into the future? This is one of our biggest challenges, and it really comes down to primarily the recreational angler. Because we can put in rules like circle hooks, but in all honesty, on the water, that's very difficult to enforce. And so it's up to individual anglers to do the right thing. Use circle hooks. Don't use a gaff. Handle the fish well and carefully. And, you know, we can knock that number back and get the stock to where we want it to be. Cool. That's a great message. It's been great having you, Mike. This was super interesting. And we hope everybody gets out there and enjoys all the fish, including striped bass. And don't forget to use those circle hooks and handle those fish with care. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebich and my co-host is Guy Iro. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar, produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore, production management by Gabriella Montaguin, post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region, Office of External Affairs. As the service reflects on 150 years of fisheries conservation, we honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individuals, tribes, the state of Alaska, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish. <laughs>